0: HVAC 360 is brought to you today by The Emperor's New Clothing Company. Tired of face masks that are too hot? Make it hard for you to be understood? And are simply horrified by the possibility of those unsightly tan lines? (sighs) Well, we are proud to announce from the great looms at the Emperor's New Clothing Company comes the Midas Mask. This mask is made from our proprietary Invisalyn fabric, which, for this product, we have coated with gold antimicrobial nanoparticles, which, of course, are 99.99% effective against killing all viral particles they come in contact with. Now you can breathe easy, communicate effortlessly, and tan like you live on the French Riviera. Well, actually, you probably already do so how much and where do you get these you may ask whoa pump those brakes, daddy warbucks first if you have to ask the price you know you can not afford it and then because of the limited supply of this delicate fabric we are rolling this offer out only to our existing clients quickly followed by all big box retailers nationwide and to proactively address those one star reviews we always seem to get if you can't see the supple's golden sheen from the Midas mask, then you're probably slow, dim, and need to see your optometrist soon. That is to say, your eye doctor, you simpletons. Look for the Midas mask today, or you'll never see what you're missing. <coughs> Welcome back, Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. I do all that by delivering curated content for you to consume your way, when you want it, because, let's face it, we're all super busy out there, and the last thing we need to do is have to plan our day around another webinar or seminar. So, let's get our learning on and let me dish out some relevant HVAC information, lessons learned, or maybe even a conversation with an industry expert And if all this doesn't wet your whistle, you can always sign up for my weekly newsletter or subscribe to my YouTube channel. All right. So, what is up for this week? This week, I thought I would share my thoughts and resources about the COVID 19 business. Um, (laughs) This is going to be a huge topic. So, I'm going to whittle it down a little bit and we're going to take it piece by piece. Um, But first, I feel this is a proper. a place for some sort of disclaimer. I am not a COVID-19 expert, just like most people on the internet. I'm just sharing my opinion and some research that I've done. So don't think that what I'm saying is definitive by any means. Use this to start conversations and search out other subject matter experts for specific questions that you have on a go-forward basis. Having said that, uh, the topics today we're going to be covering are primarily, we're going to be talking about going back to work, uh, but I want to touch briefly uh, and talk a little bit about um, you know the stuff being built now and future designs. All right, so getting back into buildings, um, this is basically going to come from... From three different areas uh, of research. First was uh, the ASHRAE page. Uh, If you don't know, ASHRAE has put together a COVID-19 ASHRAE uh, resource page, and it is uh, very extensive. Um, It's covering commercial buildings, healthcare, schools. Uh, There's a lot of good resources, and it is very detailed on kind of exactly what you want to do. Uh, The second kind of resource I'm going to use, and all these, just for your information, are going to be in the show notes. So go back to uh, HVAC360.com slash 163. So the second document I wanted to cover was the AIA document. This is their Reoccupancy Assessment Tool version 1.0 that I had taken a look at. This had basically some big bullet points. Um, not a lot of detail in it, uh, but it was very succinct and very well laid out. So kind of your uh, yin and yang for this. The Ashray engineers uh, really got into the, 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 the nitty-gritty of how to do things, and AIA kind of said, okay, these are the things that you need to do, but we're really not going to go into further detail about them. And then the third document that I'm going to just briefly touch on again, and this kind of echoes back to uh, episode 151, where I talk with uh, Dan Jones over at uh, UV Resources, that was episode 151, and we're going to talk a little bit about UV again. So, um, I'm going to start off with the reoccupancy assessment tool put out by AIA. Uh, So basically, some of the things, and and this is kind of a bulleted point, uh, bullet points, like I'm talking about. And so they broke it down into different systems. Um, They talked about plumbing, and they talked about HVAC, and those, they talk about more than that, but this is kind of, you know, I got to the the, the meat and potatoes of, of what we're interested in. So I think the one interesting thing, and I didn't really think about this at the time, but you know when we talk about kind of you know everybody was like okay you know we're not going to be in our offices, we're not going to be in schools. All these buildings are kind of you know all the commercial buildings are sitting dormant and they're not doing anything. Well, you know what's wrong with that? Um, Hopefully everybody had the sense to kind of set things back because they weren't being used and occupied, and they weren't just kind of running them twenty four seven like. Everybody was occupying them. Um, that would save a, a little bit of money in that. Uh, but the plumbing, uh, since everything wasn't being flushed, everything wasn't being used, uh, there was uh, kind of a, there is a kind of need when we do reoccupy a building uh, to kind of test the potable water system again to make sure that uh, Legionella isn't an issue when we go back to our buildings, because things have been sitting, because things have been stagnant that tends to be one of the areas where Legionella tends to pop up. So that in and of itself is kind of the, the one plumbing thing that I'm going to throw in there. As far as HVAC goes, uh, some of the things, some of the bullet points I had was uh, they wanted to increase ventilation and air changes. Uh, they wanted to create a negative pressure in buildings. Uh, consider a maximum number of occupants uh, for each HVAC season, HVAC zone. Um, change HVAC filters prior to reoccupancy. Uh, clean ducts that have been dormant. Keep system system running for longer hours, um, if possible, even 24 hours, you know, 24/7. And then prioritize fresh air intake versus recycled air wherever possible. Uh, they want you to monitor humidity levels they want to keep it between 40 and 60 percent uh, disable the demand control ventilation consider using portable room air cleaners or HEPA filters they want you to t- uh, take a look at the uh, UV uh, UV uh, C and um, consider you know places where you can make it permanent uh, consider places where you, uh, during non-occupied hours, could use it more for a a bulk sterilization, and obviously for larger buildings, you know, checking cooling towers, you know, uh, they condensate for bacterial growth again. So let's let's talk about some of these things. Um, increasing the ventilation, and you know, I, I have to say that. When we got into the ashray, what Ashray was talking about, um, they did talk about kind of you know the the bigger picture here. They talked about a lot of the details about increasing the ventilation. You know what what that really means, how how you can do that, because it's it's not about just going ahead and increasing the ventilation. Um, y- your system may not be set up for that. You know, you have existing buildings. You have existing buildings that are, you know, set up and designed around a uh, design day. So when you go ahead and change those things, change the, uh, increase the ventilation, um, you tend to um, create other problems. So that's where, you know, when you go through a lot of the, uh, what ASHRAE had put out there, there's a lot of recommendations that you know you need to hire an engineer. You need to hire a test and balance. You need to hire some commissioning if you're going to make some of these things, um, very effective and you're going to do it in a safe way and you're not going to kind of accidentally impact this, uh, because you could you know increase ventilation and air changes, uh, but then you go down the list and you're trying to maintain you know relative humidity at 40 to 60 percent. Maybe that's out the window. Maybe you can't do that any longer because that latent uh, dehumidification that you get for most systems, you know, most systems aren't actively dehumidifying air. So you get the passive dehumidification. Uh, and that's kind of out the window when you start increasing some of the outside air, you know, prioritizing fresh air intakes over recycled cycled air. Um, so those are some of the things. A lot of these things are not necessarily... Uh, energy conscious, they're all focused on health. Um, so that's one thing to uh, kind of also uh, dictate. Um, so that was one of the things, increase the air, you know, air changes, increase the ventilation. Um, you know, and in general, you know, there, there's some talk out there and I've heard about um, do HVAC systems, um, you know, spread the virus you know, again, I am not a covert expert. You know, I, I would think that those people who run the uh, finite element analysis uh, are going to be a lot more uh, in tune with what's happening and how HVAC kind of spreads. Um, you know, these kind of particles. But in general, if you think about it logically, HVAC systems—they're meant to kind of you know churn the air. You know, they want to have kind of an effective way of making sure that there's not, like, you know, dead zones in a room. Uh, You want to make sure, you know, they're washing the walls, making sure that, you know, you don't get hot spots and things like that. So in general, that's what HVAC systems are supposed to do. Um, So if you ask a system, you know, (laughs) your standard HVAC system not to do what it's designed to do, um, it can become a little bit, you know, unrealistic, I would say. You know, and there, and two. I think when you think of areas that are specifically designed like that, um, like uh, hospital ORs, those ORs have a specific layout, and they use laminar flow, and they they know exactly where the airflow is getting to. You know, to protect the uh, the patient on the operating table, to protect the uh, people working. On the patient, protect the doctors, the anesthesiologists, uh, people like that, and the nurses. And that is very kind of that is very expensive. That is a very expensive thing to do. And I think that's kind of unrealistic to actually ask your HVAC system to kind of change the way it distributes. You know, not like they had, not like they had. Uh, that was one of the things is you know they didn't say you know change the HVAC system, but I you know whether or not. HVAC is actually contributing to that. Well, it's it's just something it does. Um, all right. So obviously, decreasing the number of occupants uh, in a building—that's pretty much common sense. I think that's um, people are kind of at least thinking about you know social distancing, keeping that six feet apart, uh, making sure that uh, you know are are people going to go to uh, work on you know one set on. Uh, Monday and Wednesday, and the other people are going to go on Tuesday and Thursday. Um, You know, how is that going to work? Keeping your systems running for longer. um, So that would actually um, refer to being able to filter out and to kind of flush out a building uh, when the occupants aren't in there. Um, It doesn't have to do with, with surfaces per se, but it's just kind of making sure that all the air is kind of, you know, it's churned over. And again, how effective that is, you know, that's really to be determined. Cleaning the ducts that have been dormant, again, if you've basically shut off your building, um, are you going to go through and clean all your duct work? That's probably not realistic. Um, probably not, not very realistic. Obviously, uh, when we talk about prioritizing the fresh air intakes, That's a delicate balance like we've talked about with the humidity. Um, One thing that they were talking about, they wanted to create a negative air pressure, Um, and I wanted to kind of address that specifically. Um, Creating a negative air pressure in a building is something that you have to, in design, uh, intentionally do. Um, You don't want to accidentally do it. You don't want to do it on purpose without a lot of thought um, because you are, in essence... um, you know, really affecting your building enclosure. Um, you, if you decide to just create a negative air pressure in your building without thinking about it, without um, getting the right people, uh, around the table and discussing this, you can cause harm. You can cause, uh, um, basically, you know, poor indoor air quality because you have like microbial growth in the walls. Uh, you start to get issues like that, um, where you're not, uh, you know, like typically during a you know uh, a winter con- or a summer condition, you want to have it you know uh, you want to have it slightly positive. You want to be able to be, push the the cooler dry air out into uh, out into the environment, and that way you're kind of protecting your building enclosure. And then in winter time, you want to keep it neutral to slightly negative, and uh, and that way you're not actually um, there's more moisture inside, so you're not driving that moisture into the cold walls. So you you keep that balance and protect that building enclosure, so you don't make that building enclosure sick uh, by accident. So creating a negative air pressure, um, I don't think I understand where they're going with that, um, and it might be something that you know maybe in a vestibule, maybe in certain locations, but not as a you know for a building as a whole. Uh, I don't think that would be a, a great thing. Uh, disabling the demand control ventilation, obviously that is you know an effort to save energy uh, by reducing the amount of outside air that you don't need because the people aren't going to be there. Um, I think typically if you you know if you go back to the limiting of the number of people uh, that you have in a building, you're already going to be, uh, if you don't have demand control ventilation, you're already going to be over um, overventilating a space. Uh, because of the way it was designed. So I think that really, that needs to be factored in. And again, this is why you need engineers coming to the table to kind of think about all the systems in the building and reevaluating them. Uh, consider the use of uh, portable room air cleaners with HEPA filters. I think that's a, that's a a great idea. That's one thing that you can do just to clean an air, you know, clean the air in the localized area. Um, again, where you' where the occupants are, you can treat that. Um, and then gets, gets goes into the UVC and I'm gonna kind of gloss over the UVC a little bit because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And then obviously there's it's it's a no-brainer for uh, checking the cooling and um, water tower condensate for microbial growth. Yeah, those are some of the things that you want to do anyway. Um, you know an ash ray, what ASHRAE did, obviously, you know, like I said, it went into, you know, what happens when you increase the filtration? Um, you know, what's the downstream effect? What are the effects to the system when you go from a, a MERV-6 to a MERV-8? Um, there is something to be said there. And usually, understand, too, a lot of the, a lot of the filtration that happens at air handling units is to really protect the air handling unit, protect the equipment, get you know increase the longevity of it, and um, you know when it's very critical to the space, then you have uh, filtration that's closer to the space. You have, uh, for instance, in the ORs, you'll have HEPA filtration at the diffusers. Um, so that's something that you know to protect everybody in the room. They're going to have HEPA filtration, you know, to filter out you know those super small particles uh virus size small uh, virus size particles out of the airstream and that's why you know getting a, a localized you know HEPA filter filtration you know you can just kind of recirculate the air in the room and just kind of clean it up that way it's kind of like an air purifier so so to speak um except on a more effective level when you have that HEPA filtration doing that You know, and and two, you got to realize, you know, if this is something that they're going to be doing on a go forward basis uh, for a long period of time, for a number of months, if you're increasing the filtration, I mean, filters, it's no surprise to anybody in the industry that filtration and filters are one of the things that get pushed off uh, on deferred maintenance. It's just an extra cost. And everybody is stressed out enough as it is, um, you know, both work wise and budget wise. Uh, that you know, replacing these more expensive filters, you know, is is going to have to you know factor into things. So, increasing the filtration, you know, take it for what it's worth. Again, it needs to be evaluated on a case by case basis whether that's a you know a really good option for you. Um, and then again, you know, a lot of uh, things that are touched on. In the you know the ashray uh, these PDFs that are put out. Um, you, you're talking about you know going through and making sure that all your building automation system, everything's working right. So it's basically kind of like a recommissioning, making sure everything's clean, making sure that you change the filters prior to reoccupancy, making sure that um, your energy recovery uh, units, if you have those, um, are operating properly. You know Some changes that you might want to make. And again, this is one of those things where if you make a list of... 10 changes to uh, make your, you know, uh, you know, post-epidemic, post-pandemic response for your building. Um, You know, these are kind of, you know, very uh, big changes that you're making to your building. Make sure you document those and make sure that it's going to be easy to kind of put those back, um, you know, whenever, if ever uh, we get back to a, you know, business as usual kind of mentality. All right, so getting back into the... Let's talk a little bit about um, UVC, or UV, I guess, a little bit. And again, I, I, I'm going to link not only to the uh, the episode where we interviewed Dan, but he actually had an article recently in HPAC uh, Magazine, and I'm going to link to that, um, where he kind of went over a few things. Um, obviously, you know, UVC is, uh, you know, ultraviolet uh, irradiation. It's going to be effective on surfaces. It's going to be effective for airborne bacteria. And I guess, you know, the, a couple of interesting things that I picked up on um, in addition to when I talked to Dan is there's really kind of UV and, you know, you might ask, what is UVC? You know, what happened to UVA, UVB? Um, well, it turns out that there's actually four different types of, of UV segments. So when you talk about UVC, that's a specific wavelength set. Um, So there's UVA, there's a set for that. Um, There's wavelengths for UVB and UVC. And then there's a fourth one, which is UV uh, in a vacuum. So that's actually much smaller. But UVC is the um, very high energy and destructive type of um, UV. And again, these are kind of just... um, lamps so there are you know, tubes that are kind of like you know these long incandescent tubes um that uh well, actually fluorescent fluorescent tubes not incandescent but fluorescent tubes um you know like you'd see in old shop lights except they have a kind of a, a clear coating in the middle and um you know they're a little different but you know the form factor is the same you know you have different lengths of these long tubes so ubc is a specific wavelength and they're very effective in germ killing, because um, I guess UVC goes from uh, 280 nanometers to 200. And right now, uh, I guess the kind of the the magic number is 253. So that's right in right in the middle of there. Uh, 253.7 nanometers is really the wave war- waveform that's absorbed by the DNA and RNA, basically eliminating its ability to replicate. So it Eventually, you know, because use, he uses the term inactive, it renders the, the virus inactive um, rather than, you know, quote-unquote, killing it. But it can't replicate anymore, so I guess for all intents and purposes, it is dead. But there's three ways that you can use uh, UVC. One is going to be a way um, that you're going to use it, uh, utilize it um, in your upper room and air systems um by interrupting the transmission of airborne infection diseases in high traffic and communal areas. Um, and what this is basically, because you know the HVAC system generally speaking is good at at churning the air, um, there's a portion of the air, you know, especially when it comes out of the diffuser, it's gonna hug the ceiling, kind of go down the walls, and then it's gonna come back up. And you're going to have this circulation pattern. And, and a percentage of that is going to be you know, returned into the air handling unit. But if you irradiate the, um, the, high, uh, the high part of the ceiling, um, that is kind of uh, an effective way, they found, an effective way to affect the uh, bacteria, the viruses, things that are kind of floating in the air. And it's very effective. Obviously, UVC. If you've ever been around it, you know it's this kind of this bluish light. Um, but typically, there is there's you need to be able to be able to um, you know shut it off uh, to do maintenance on it. And uh, you know that's I guess that's just one of the things because if you if you don't you essentially it's just like uh, it's just like if you do welding um, you're going to be exposed to you know high energy UV and you're going to get a uh, you know a sunburn basically. Um, it's going to burn you, depending on how long and how much time you spend within, you know, being irradiated by the UV light. So just just like it kills bacteria and um, you know bacteria and viruses, it's it's going to damage your skin as well. It's going to affect your cells. So make sure that that the the proper um, precautions and controls are in place when. And if you add it, and that's why they did the, the upper levels. They also re- kind of recommended too, in the, um, in the AIA tool that there might be a, a, a way of, you know, setting these UV lights in an unoccupied space and kind of irradiating the surfaces when people aren't there. Um, this is, I've, I've seen kind of like robots that do that. Um, uh, but also, um, that was one of the recommendations that, that you might have, you know, that, um, as one of the things that uh, you institute in your building uh, on a go-forward basis. You know, a lot of, a lot of things sent around, you know, you know, cleaning surfaces and things like that. But, you know, that was one of the ways to kind of affect that. Um, the second way was to use Airstream disinfection systems. Now, I got to put a little caveat because if you listen to 151, um, you know, there, there is the time and intensity rule. For UVC, so depending on what your feet per minute, what depending on what your temperature, and just to kind of you know, um, give you an idea, all these different factors play into how effective it is. Um, you might have to use you know for for uh, you know the uh, higher velocities of airflow. You might have to use more tubes. Uh, that might be more more expensive, more air draw, or you know, more uh, you know power draw, uh, things like that. Um, if you're doing it. And it's a higher temperature. Um, it, it's interesting to note that he says that the, uh, you know, the lamps that are at 55 degrees uh, compared to lamps that are at 75 degrees, um, the warmer lamps actually produce 40% more UVC uh, output than the colder lamps. So if you're kind of like if you're thinking about putting it in um, ductwork, if you're thinking about putting it in an air handling unit, um, understand that. A cooler air temperature is going to derate the lamps. Um, so not only that, uh, and ag- again, like we talked about on the podcast previously, is that you get about a year's worth of runtime out of these lamps before you before you change them. Um, and then the third one was the coil radiation systems uh, within the air handler and duct runs. And again, I think you know that really is more for um you know microbial growth and things like that that are on the the actual unit itself um keeping it clean keeping it you know biologically free of uh materials but you know is that going to be the best solution for um for a you know a you know covid-19 situation i don't know um i i my gut reaction my my feelings and opinion on that, on that Uh, is it's going to be it's going to be better for energy efficiency it's going to be better you you know you're going to get some residual um, benefit of um, in that by putting it in units Um, but it's not going to be if you're actually protecting the occupants where occupants generally are i don't think that's probably going to be the most effective way to use uvc um, the one thing that he did, he did, you know, finish off the uh, the article by pointing out is that there's been, you know, this is not kind of, um, you know, a lot of you know, smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of good hard evidence for UVC using UVC um, in a lot of applications, and that is something that that Ashray has a lot of uh, experience with. And there's a number of different standards and and uh, that you can look at. It's in the applications handbook um, for 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 ray, So very well very documented uh use of UV C lamps. But again, you got to be able to get the engineers in here, understand exactly, you know, what you're dealing with and what your best situation is, what's your best um you know tact in handling, you know, the reoccupation of buildings. So, you know, it, and and that's kind of you know, where it is for getting back into buildings. When we talk about current designs, you know, I, I have to think, you know, are some of the current designs for buildings obsolete? Um, you, you really have to think about it. Um, because, you know, they've already, you know, you know, they're being built and they're being put in and they don't necessarily have maybe some of the the diversity. Because, uh, again, you need some sort of resiliency, you need to have some sort of um, uh, like wiggle room, um, different ways that you can operate the system, and I think that's one of the things that designers in the future, when we look at future designs, that's going to be one of the things that uh, future designers are going to need to plan for. You know, what's the possibility of you know, um, you know, the, the fact of you know, I, I think you know, way back when when they were you know talking about. Uh, you know, different sort of attacks on buildings, um, and you'd have, you know, different plans and different, you know, scenarios, and the building would react to some sort of biological attack. Um, this, is, this is really something, you know, you know, that would be typically, that would be rare, that would be all, you know, government buildings, things like that. Um, but this is something, you know, is very, very real. And, you know, it's going to happen, now as it, it's going to happen in the future um, you know it's a, not a matter of if it's this is just a matter of when it's going to happen um, Is it going to be of this scale? maybe not um, maybe not again in you know a hundred years, but it knowing that you know the last outbreak was you know uh, of, of, of any sort of uh, significant size was probably ten years ago with with some of the SARS that was going around um, This has only been ten years after that so the likelihood of it happening again is is pretty high. Um, so future designs, you're going to be, have to have uh, more flexibility. You're going to have to think about the, the filtration and the UV. You're going to have to do that going into it. Um, uh, pressurization, building pressurization and the air changes, all these things are going to factor in to any sort of future designs. Um, one, one last thing that I, I wanted to to talk about briefly because it was it was interesting. I just it popped up on my uh, radar was an article in the Construction Specifier talking about different products that are specified with antimicrobial, uh, you know, coatings. And basically, it was a, a Perkins and Will, uh, along with a Healthy, healthy Buildings Network. There was, they uh, produced a uh, white paper in 2017 talking about these antimicrobial building products. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, because obviously, you know, when we talk about cleaning, washing hands, being, you know, socially distant, um, you talk about surfaces and you know what we make surfaces out of i mean there was there was you know big deals about making things out of copper um because it has certain microbial uh, uh, properties um but then there's you know there's this big um push and you know you've seen it before you know try to make things you know cleaner and more sanitary you add this microbial coating and i think that's one of the things that they they kind of um said that basically um Despite marketing claims uh, suggesting otherwise, no scientific evidence demonstrates uh, additional human health benefits from antimicrobial additives in building products and materials. Uh, in fact, uh, you know if you think about it, um, they, uh, antimicrobial add- additives uh, have been shown to leach out of materials during use, entering drains and water treatment facilities. And in fact, certain antimicrobials such as nanosilver, uh, are considered toxic to humans and the aquatic ecosystem. Obviously, if you if you're going to have an antimicrobial surface, um, you know despite you know as despite what it is, you're going to have to wash it. You're going to have to wash it, and those you know some of those uh, particles are going to come off, and that's going to get into your ecosystem. Or even worse, um, you're gonna think that, hey, it has this antimicrobial coating, I don't need to wash it. And it's perfectly fine, it's gonna take care of itself. And that is just as bad. um, Because nobody's really taking a look and um, governing these antimicrobial products, Um, be very, very careful about what you're specifying and what you're putting into your buildings. Thinking that, hey, this might be more safe than another product or just, you know, making sure that, you know, a, a better cleaning process may be better than spending money on antimicrobial uh, products in and of itself. So, and again, this was just based on information from that white paper. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. All right, well, that's basically all I had for this week. Thanks so much for taking the time and listening. I hope this is helpful. I hope you've learned something. As always, the show notes can be found at HVAC360.com slash 163. Uh, If you know somebody who might be looking to step up their HVAC game, consider sharing this episode or another one of your favorites with them. This is really by far the best thing that you can do to help out um, and spread the word about this podcast, and I'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you want, subscribe over to HVAC360.com uh, for a weekly dose of our written word or browse my YouTube channel. Um, right now, it just basically has the uh, um, the uh, shows, <laughs> the, the, the podcast episodes, but I'm hoping in, in the future um, that I'm going to add some other material on there as well. So... Uh, lastly, if you'd be, uh, I'd be greatly honored if you'd leave me a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts because that still really affects the, um, you know, who's able to see this, who's able to find it, and I would really greatly appreciate that. Well, that's a wrap for this week of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know.